Welcome to Private Equity Perspectives, a podcast by BDO USA's private equity practice. Each episode, BDO connects with leaders in the private equity space to discuss the latest trends driving deal activity, fund strategies, and portfolio company optimization. Hello, and welcome to another episode of BDO's Private Equity Perspectives Podcast. I'm Todd Kinney, National Relationship Director with BDO's Private Equity Practice based here in New York City. I'm really excited to have two special guests with me today to talk about the landscape of PE and VC investments in financial services and really strategies for value creation in general. First, we have Peter Neswald. Chief Operating Officer, Financial Services Investment Banking at Raymond James. Great to have you on the show today, Peter. Thanks for having me. Yep. Also, I'm thrilled to have Sachin Sarnabat, who is a Managing Director at Adelaide Capital. Thanks for taking time to be on the program, Sachin. Thank you, Todd. Excited to be here. Awesome. Let's jump into it. Uh, I guess, Peter, I'll throw the first question to you. Can you tell us about uh, your role at Raymond James and also about... Um, I, th- I think it's very unique. Uh, we haven't had a lot of folks on the uh, the podcast that have written books, so maybe you can talk about some of the uh, the books you've written on M and A as well. You bet. So, I think a lot of people think of Raymond James uh, primarily as a wealth management firm, but um, we have a sizable mid market investment bank as well. Roughly three hundred and fifty investment bankers. We've advised on more than six hundred mandates since twenty fifteen. So, as the chief operating officer of financial services investment banking. I oversee roughly 50 investment bankers in seven cities. Uh, we cover depositories, spec fin, insurance, asset and wealth management. Uh, we rank usually in the top three in each of those categories. Uh, in terms of the books, uh, it certainly is a labor of love. Um, so I've um, co-authored four books in the Art of M&A series. Um, the books average about 500 pages each. So if you have insomnia, um, I highly recommend them to you. <laughs> Um, and uh, I, for the past five years, I've been an adjunct professor at, at Fordham University's Cabelli School of Business, where I teach M&A to undergrads and MBAs as well. Awesome. Very impressive. I'm sure you'll uh, have some good insights for us as we dig into things. So, Sachin, maybe you could tell us, tell our listeners about your work at Adelaide, as well as the uh, fascinating patent you earned in data mining and how you uh, feel that relates to the financial services industry. Thank you, Todd. Let me start off with Adelaide. Adelaide is an alternative investment manager that focuses on making private credit and special opportunity investments across corporate, real estate, and specialty finance. Our firm has focused on investing in credit-oriented assets for over 13 years now. We create credit assets, we buy credit assets, and we finance credit assets, all with a focus on the fundamental characteristics of the underlying assets. The firm spends a lot of time in financial services because it's broad and it's fragmented. To give you a sense of the market size, there are tens of thousands of companies in the sector uh, which have over 1.5 trillion in credit assets spanning consumer, commercial, and real estate financing. Given the size and scope, uh, we believe that the financial services space represents to us an all-weather opportunity set. These companies produce a high volume of credit-oriented assets that need to be financed, and we typically look for opportunities with companies that need our structuring technology, our industry expertise, and especially access to scalable capital solutions. Speaking of uh, the patent, um, I began my career focused on analyzing consumer behavior and trying to predict consumer credit risk using nonlinear models 
with both quantitative and textual data. That type of predictive modeling was at the cutting edge almost 15 years ago, but now is known as artificial intelligence or big data. You might be surprised to hear this, but the type of predictive analytics that I was working on back then haven't really changed over the intervening years. Although the technology and the models themselves have become more robust um, because of the proliferation of a lot more data sources, the volume of data that's now available to predict what consumers will do is quite amazing. And I think this theme of big data seems to have contributed significantly to the fintech evolution of the banking industry. Pretty fascinating, as I guess you could imagine. You're, I think you're our uh, first patent holder on the uh, the podcast. So I've Honored got a here. patent holder and an author. Fantastic. So drawing further on the connection, why don't we uh, explore the world of fintech? So, Peter, I'll throw this one to you. Where are we now compared to where we were five years ago? Yeah, that, that's a good question. I, you know, I think what we're starting to see is a convergence of the so-called pure play fintech platforms and traditional financial institutions. And, and by that, what I mean is that a lot of the innovation that we saw in the first half of this decade, so whether that was new technology, new business models, we're now seeing that become integrated across the industry. So Robinhood is a really good example. Robinhood is only five years old, founded in 2014. And the idea of zero um, commissions for stock trades at that time was quite revolutionary. You know, how could this company possibly make money? You know, some of us of a certain age might even remember an SNL skit from the 90s called the Change Bank. Uh, and all the bank did was make change. Uh, how are they going to make money? Through volume, right? And so, you know, I think in the early days, Robinhood was quite revolutionary because the business model was not very clear. Uh, today, uh, zero commissions are now the industry norm. Um, another good example would be robo-advisors. So, you know, there were well over 100 independent robo-advisors five years ago. Um, as the use case was being proven in robo-advisors, we saw Schwab and then Vanguard jump, jump in, and it really catapulted um, that particular uh, uh, market segment, and they leapfrogged the independents. So what's fascinating about this is that these trends are not new. Uh, you could actually argue that there's this sort of rolling five-year innovation wave in fintech before things go mainstream. And the, the best example I can think of is online banking. So the pioneers of, of online banking were really these internet-only banks like NetBank and Telebank, you know, companies you might have to go to Wikipedia, frankly, uh, to find the names of at this point. And that was in the early 1990s. Five years later, when B of A decided to get into online banking, well, they catapulted those independents. Um, and now online banking is, is clearly pervasive. So I guess it's a long way of saying that today's fintech is really tomorrow's tech-enabled solution. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. Uh, Sachin, I'll, I'll kick it over to you. Where Maybe you could tell our listeners where you think fintech is headed. That's a good question, Todd. And I think for that, it's important to take a step back and think about the entomology of fintech, fin and tech. We see these as two parallel, longstanding, standalone industries, each with their own secular trends that have morphed together to create this fintech revolution. This has been partially been led by bank disintermediation, which has been taking place for a couple of decades now. Banks are no longer the only distribution channel, nor are they the preferred underwriting standard. Local banks seem to be losing a little bit of their historical multi-product relevance with their borrowers. And historically, borrowers approach local banks for many products, 
which allowed banks to use the high-margin products to subsidize the distribution costs. Today, technology seems to be chipping away at most, if not all, of these high-margin products. This seems to be where the second part of the fintech evolution is happening. Technology has enabled localized data capture and remote underwriting and servicing, thereby encroaching on one of the critical places in the value chain where we thought the banks actually did a pretty good job. Both of these trends have allowed disruptive tech-enabled business models to replace traditional banks. For example, consumer finance, we think, is one of the largest segments where such disruption has given rise to a plethora of these subscale originators focused on hyper-niche but very profitable consumer segments. The fintech landscape has generated cross-sectional interest from a variety of investors ranging from venture capital and growth equity firms to strategic investors and, of course, lenders. But in reality, I think firms with deep expertise across both the fin and the tech are going to be the ones that are going to be successful in the longer term. Excellent. Lots of uh, lots of good content and points for our, our listeners to think about on uh, fintech. Let's, let's move on to our next topic. I'd like to ask Peter's thoughts really on some of the factors driving PE and VC deal activity in financial services. Uh, actually, according to BDO's upcoming survey of PE fund managers and VC professionals, it looks like the financial services sector was cited as one of the top industries likely to experience increasing deal activity in the year ahead. So, Peter, I guess the question for you is, what do you think are some of the factors that are really contributing to this? Yeah, and we can definitely attest to that, at least anecdotally, in terms of the amount of private equity interest in, in financial services. So, you know, as fig bankers, our group is absolutely running into more and more generalist private equity firms looking to deploy capital into the space. And that is an enormous difference versus five years ago or 10 years ago. Um, You know, at that time, financial services was really just the domain of specialist sponsors, JC Flowers, if you remember from the the crisis days, firms like Aqualine. Um, There were probably a dozen PE shops that really focused on fig. Uh, at least back then. Today, we track more than 200 private equity firms that have reached out to our department um, looking for deal flow. And I think a couple of things have have changed. Coming out of the financial crisis, a lot of the deals were very much balance sheet driven. It was about stabilizing the capital structure of large financial institutions. And you really had to be an expert and you had to have deep resources to do that. And probably more importantly, uh, scale was really of paramount importance. Um, sort of mid this decade, we saw a pivot more towards asset light businesses in uh, in financial services. That's where the interest was going, more business services oriented companies. Um, so we're not investing in a bank. We're investing in a tech enabled specialty finance platform that originates in factors receivables. Um, we certainly have seen tremendous interest in the wealth management space as well. Uh, enormously fragmented, almost 14,000 independent firms in the industry. Um, There are roughly 3,700 that have at least a billion in assets, benefits of scale economies. There There are now lenders that are willing to put leverage on these things. And the demographics of the owners, the principles of wealth management firms, have really hit a tipping point where consolidation is going to be forced uh, frankly, just due to our own life cycle. So, so yes, um, I would say we, we certainly are seeing more PE interest in, in financial services. Yeah, lots of good points, as, as are we, for sure. Sachin, I'll turn to you now. I'm really interested in hearing about private credit strategies. 
since the global financial crisis of 2008, direct private credit investments outside of the traditional banking system have grown significantly. Both regulation and competition have added pressure to the traditional regional banking model to consolidate and focus on larger borrowers, which are typically easier to underwrite and service than smaller borrowers. This has left smaller borrowers with much reduced access to bank financing because there's a higher degree of resources required to diligence and monitor these borrowers. While private credit funds have emerged as a capital source for companies that these banks are no longer financing, the vast majority of such private debt funds seem to focus on private equity sponsor lending. Consequently, middle market companies that do not have the backing of a private equity sponsor or fit into a predefined mold find it uh, a little bit harder to access this, these pools of private credit. At Adelaya, we actually like these mid-market borrowers and are excited to work closely with founder-led management teams. We typically offer transformational capital to achieve near-term goals. Oftentimes, founders uh, need a lot more than just access to capital. They also benefit from a collaborative institutional partner to help them for a sale process or the next capital raise. Typically, we will design a financing plan with the borrower's business objectives in mind, one that enables the company to invest new capital efficiently. Both transformation and turbulence may be driven by rapid growth, maybe evolving business plans, or uh, even distress. One of Adelaide's approach to investing is to help these borrowers successfully navigate these transformative but turbulent periods for their business. When a business is at such a strategic inflection point, whether that's reached by adding infrastructure for growth, operationally intensive execution, uh, business plan changes, it's often easier to rely on one sophisticated investor who is aligned with the overall success of the business. Great. Appreciate the, uh, the insights on the credit side. That's very helpful. Uh, at this point, uh, let's jump into our, our coffee break guest. Uh, today, we have Keith McGowan, who's the national practice leader for BDO's asset management practice. And Keith is based here in uh, the New York City office with me. Let's hear from him now. Today, I'm here to talk about the role of fintech as it relates to value creation in traditional asset management. The rise of fintech companies and solutions over the last five years has led to a completely new and transformed financial services landscape. Catalysts such as changing customer expectations, cutthroat competition, a squeeze on fees, increasing regulatory complexity, and pressure to streamline operations are driving the push for reinvention and innovation in the financial services sector. The asset management industry is not immune to this disruption. One example is the rise of robo-advisors, both competing and collaborating with RIAs and broker-dealers by providing financial and investment management services online and via mobile devices with often moderate to minimal human intervention. Based on complex algorithms, these digital trans uh, platforms demonstrate how fintech is living up to its name as a disruptor by shifting the roles of traditional fund managers and financial advisors as well as altering investment flows. It raises the stakes for traditional RIAs to be successful. As technologies like these and others 
like the Internet of Things, blockchain, artificial intelligence, and ecosystems that incorporate elements of each give rise to new business models and solutions. It's critical to understand how with technology in flux, from the type, size, and capabilities of fintech standalones to new fintech applications, what this impact will be on client relationships, expectations, and introducing new competitive advantages. Most financial services companies recognize that fintech needs to be on the, at the heart of their strategy going forward. However, according to BDO's 2019 Middle Market Digital Transformation Survey, while 68% of financial services companies have developed a digital transformation strategy, only 14% of them are actually in the process of implementation, highlighting a wide gap between good intentions and reality. Despite its unpredictability and challenges, digital transformation has proven to generate high ROI for organizations. FinTech's demonstrable financial benefits tend to outweigh most of the major challenges to implementing FinTech strategies. In fact, the same survey found that 62% of all financial services organizations saw their revenue increase significantly by one to 9% due to digital investments, while 24% of upper middle market organizations reported a 10% or greater revenue increase due to digital investments. Overall, FinTech can be perceived as a positive force and partner, providing capabilities to, to streamline processes and optimize efficiency rather than the enemy. For example, when implemented effectively, data-driven strategies can help fund managers make better investments. With regard to private equity, there's a huge opportunity for operational value creation, either through digitalization strategies or FinTech add-ons. That's reflected in BDO's new 2020 Private Capital Outlook Survey, which has both venture capital fund managers and private equity fund managers ranking financial services as one of the top three sectors expected to see an increase in deal activity over the next 12 months. Thank you for listening to today's Coffee Break. I am Keith McGowan, and I'm sending this back to you, Todd. Thanks for your insights, Keith. So let's jump back in our chat today with our guests, Sachin Sarnabat and Peter Nesvold. Uh, I guess, Sachin, the next uh, topics for you, uh, esoteric assets, really, which have always existed, seem to gain traction before the 2008 financial crisis, have seemingly phased out over time due to struggles in infrastructure to capitalize on them. So I guess the question is, Sachin, are you starting to see these securities become more popular? Thanks, Todd. Uh, it's interesting. I love the word esoteric assets. Um, and I ask myself, what are esoteric assets? So do I. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, historically, you know, these esoteric assets have comprised of um, financing what I call off-the-run assets or, or maybe receivables from rental cars, subprime consumer loans, aircraft, litigation finance, cat bonds, and you know, many other similar asset classes that we use every single day. While these products are used by a very large portion of the overall economy, they themselves are highly bespoke, often non-homogeneous, and uh, need active servicing to maximize value that's embedded in them. Asset-based securitization markets that you refer to have always had an appetite for these large, diverse pools of assets at um, highly attractive advance rates. 
but still offer a reasonable premium to other similarly rated tranches. At Adalaya, we've typically invested in diversified pools of these esoteric assets that are um, not efficient or subscale for either banks and most definitely the securitization markets. These situations typically involve a significant level of industry expertise to conduct thorough due diligence, structure transactions um, appropriately, have access to backup servicing relationships, and most importantly, scalable pool of capital. There are natural barriers to entry for investing in these assets because anything that's not um, cookie cutter is going to be less efficient for either banks or the securitization markets. Borrowers seeking investors or lenders for such esoteric investments typically only find a few select firms with the capabilities and the appetites to evaluate these opportunities. So um, to sum it up, I think the demand uh, keeps going up, but we only have a small pool of investors that um, the borrowers can actually go to. All right. Pretty fascinating stuff, providing uh, some clarity for the, uh, the host here. So, Peter, I know you're focused on the asset and wealth management space. Uh, perhaps you could tell our listeners what you think are some of the drivers behind the asset and wealth management explosion in PE activity. Yeah. So, you know, as I mentioned um, a short while ago, there are over 13,000 independently registered SEC um, financial advisory firms in the industry. And I think at one time, um, a lot of uh, investors thought of these firms as being more or less levered plays on the equity markets. Uh, so AUM goes up as the financial markets go up, so revenues go up, earnings go up. But if the market rolls over, uh, wouldn't we see that same, uh, that same uh, shift to the downside? Um, what's, I guess the one benefit coming out of the financial crisis is that these financial models were really tested to their extremes. And what we found was the best managed uh, wealth management firms, let's say top quartile, actually grew during the financial crisis. Um, investors took money from underperforming managers or managers where they had lost faith and conviction and put it in the hands of managers that they thought could do a, a more professional job. Um, and so this idea that the industry was levered play on the equity markets was really dissolved. Um, We've seen at least a half a dozen sponsor-backed consolidators enter the market. Uh, we've seen Focus Financial go public. And my prediction is within 24 months, we'll see a couple of other of these financial uh, sponsor-owned platforms also hit the IPO market. Awesome. Well, I really appreciate uh, your, your collective take on the market and uh, where it's headed. So uh, Sachin Sarnabat with Adelaide Capital and Peter Nesvold with Raymond James. Uh, can't thank you enough. I know our listeners are going to uh, enjoy hearing your insights. We value uh, the BDO uh, relationship with both of your firms. So thank you so much. I know you guys are busy guys. So thanks for being here today. Thank you, Todd. Thank you. To our listeners, thanks so much for tuning in. If you haven't already, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and leave a review of the show on iTunes. Until next time, this is BDO's Private Equity Perspectives. The views presented by our guests do not necessarily reflect the views of their respective firms. Thank you for listening to the Private Equity Perspectives podcast. For more information on how BDO supports private equity sponsors, funds, and their portfolio companies with a full spectrum of accounting, tax, and advisory services, please visit us at BDO.com. 
If you enjoyed the show, we hope you visit iTunes to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. Join us next time for another edition of Private Equity Perspectives.